Today, I'd like to see a show of hands on how many people think they're good negotiators. Pretty, pretty good negotiators. Show of hands. Good. I expect, uh, I expect that in this group. Now, next question is how many people think they have what I call the persuasive mindset? Persuasive mindset is when you kind of something snaps on and it's a filter when you think, oh, this person's trying to persuade me. And conversely, you know when you're trying to persuade someone. Does anyone have that persuasive filter? All right, great. Uh, so today, I'm going to talk about one thing that can't be taken away, and that's developing this persuasive mindset. And it's something you can develop through time. And I want to share with you a lesson and a story about what's called the Forgotten Theater of World War II, and that is the China Burma India Theater, CBI. And there was an 18-year-old named Arthur. He enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1941. War came, and he spent the bulk of his career in China, Burma, and India traveling around. His name was Arthur. He's actually my uncle. And he would talk about being in the foothills of the Himalaya and how you could touch the stars, it seemed. He would talk about how he would track tiger tracks uh, in the forest with his unit sometimes for fun. And sometimes they would run low on provisions. They cut down trees and he described a very sweet fruit that was kind of like a banana, but the seeds were, were uh, huge and uh, it kind of got him by. Never really talked about, you know, any real combat or stuff. And a lot of people in that era didn't really discuss those things. But there's one story he told me about a lesson he was given. And he gave this lesson to all his nephews and nieces. And he was out with his unit or coming upon a village. Uh, it was listed on a map. And where the village was, they couldn't really see. It was kind of obscured by fog. As they got closer, they could see and smell wood smoke. The village had been burnt down to the ground. When they came into the village center, some individuals came out from the forest and they spoke English. And this was probably in Southern China. And this villager told my uncle, he said, they can take away my family, they can burn down my house, but they can't take away my education. And I wanted to learn English and I taught myself English and I'll always have that. The unit gathered intel and kind of moved on. And that's the lesson that I want to give to you today. And it's about once you see this persuasive mindset. It's a filter where you can't unlearn it and you'll see it. And when you read a, read a newspaper headline or when you're trying to talk to a teenager, you'll always have this mindset. And there's three principal areas I want to talk about today that help us understand what I call this persuasive mindset. And the first thing we're going to talk about are narratives. Do uh, a storytelling. Does that impact our persuadability. Second, I want to talk about our biology. Uh, neurologically, how do we get into kind of a persuasive mood? And finally, knowing the persuasive mindset is meaningless unless it actually helps us do something. And in business, we want to be better than average, better than average. So how do we do that? And my approach is it's a systems approach. So let's get right into it. I want to talk about persuasive mindset, and we're going to go over some of the research by uh, a gentleman, uh, Bangatur et al., and what these 
what this research has to do with is exploring four questions. One is, uh, do people who are trying to persuade actually use narrative storytelling? Uh, secondly, what elements do they do when they use when they go into their stories? Um, who are the storytellers? Are there traits about these people that we can say, oh yeah, these are storytellers? And fourth, does it actually make us do better when we're trying to persuade people? Or are we persuaded by stories? And here's what the results were. Um, of the would-be persuaders, only 23% use narrative storytelling in their persuasive efforts. Most people use data, self-promotion, other things on how to convince people to do something. This did not persuade. Narratives that engage the senses, sweet fruit, wood smoke, fog, these visual things help us persuade if we fold in you know, our data, the objective criteria we want when we're trying to get people into the frontal cortex. We'll talk about that in a minute. And men produced more stories than women. So this is important because if you are a lady and I uh, coach a lot of um, female executive groups, you want to tell more narratives, more stories. And here's the outcome. Why is this important? The takeaway is narratives increase deal closure. Naked facts and self-promotion actually decreased that closure. So you really want to think about doing these narratives in your persuasive efforts. Next thing I want to talk about is biology in the persuasive mindset. What do I mean? It's what we think about initially. Show of hands, how many people have a little bit of anxiety when you go into a major negotiation? Does anyone lose sleep? Yeah. Uh, the people who raise their hands, I know are real pros because I've been doing this for 30 plus years and I get anxiety. You don't know. And we have to get our own biology under control. But more importantly, the other side, we want them to manage their biology. And what we're talking about is the amygdala, the limbic system. If you've read Dr. Schaefer's work, he's an FBI psychologist who was, his job was to turn Soviet agents into double agents. And basically to summarize it and oversimplify, we will negotiate in our frontal cortex, in our problem solving area of our brain, once we get by the amygdala, the simple limbic system with people we know, like, and trust to summarize. And what that is, you know, it's the, you know, when you enter a negotiation, whether or not you know it, your first reaction and most reactions in the studies we have people don't know what to do, so they freeze. Uh, they may want to avoid it and procrastinate, or you may want to punch the person in the face. That's the fight response. So whether it's freeze, flight, or fight, these are things that we have to get over ourselves, of course, but also on the other side. So, so how do we do that? And once we get that, we can get into the systems approach. Start with their biology, because as a business person, as a successful business person, you probably can get yourself under control, but how do we get that other person under control? How do we make them feel more comfortable so they'll let us know if a deal can be done? And there's a four-step process. Begin with an empathic statement. This is in all of self-helpery now, empathy. Uh, there's actually something to it and we'll talk about it. Um, next step is to just listen, repeat to confirm, and then do options. If you're a chess player, this is kind of like your opener, your middle game, and your end game. What is empathy? Empathy is very simple. It's 
walking in someone's shoes. What's it like to be that person across the table? I'm not going to be able to persuade them unless I experience a little bit of what their life is like right now in front of us. Um, gee, gentlemen, that looks like a very warm suit on such a hot day. How do you feel? And let them talk. Or if that child is actually literate, you have a cute little vest there. Where did you get that? Uh, more importantly, if we're um, uh, trying to get a cup of coffee and the barista is like rattled, wow, that last customer was really stressful. How was that? And let them talk. That's an empathic statement when you're standing in someone else's shoes. Next thing you do in this step to kind of get that know, like, and trust going is just to listen, to listen and not interrupt. When we listen, a lot of things happen. People who listen, the listener actually is favored by the speaker. The speaker thinks they're more intelligent, more honest, and more trustworthy, even though they have no objective data upon which to base that. Why? Because they listen to them. And it's this odd thing that humans do. So listening, not interrupting, not in over speaking is a great way to think about the persuasive mindset. And when people are trying to persuade you, and if they're pros, they will let you talk until you have no more words. And this is important because here's the big clincher. If you validate what they said, repeat to uh, I call it repeat to confirm, where you tell them what they said. And if you ever read uh, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, great book you should get, he calls this mirroring. You basically say what the person just told you. You say what they told you. What this does is four principal things it does. It makes them feel great because it validates and it lets you see if you got it right. And if you're doing a complex deal, you want to orally say it so you got it right. Because a lot of times people go away from the table thinking they're thinking about the same thing and they're not. So if there's an error, you'll be corrected. It may trigger more questions about certain deal points. And uh, more importantly, it really cements this idea of these virtues that, hey, they listened to me and they understood what I was saying. And that's so important when we repeat to confirm. And I love Chris Voss, you know, another FBI guy. So that's a, that's a career path. You work for the FBI, you write a book and then you go on the lecture circuit. But what, what Chris talks about is if someone talks for 15 minutes and you can't remember, just repeat the last three words and it has the same effect. So what you're saying is you're very upset or something like that. Just say the last few words of what they said and it'll have the same effect. You don't have to perfectly paraphrase. And finally, the close is about options. Once you've had this dialogue, present options. You want to, of course, print the option that you want because how we communicate our needs to the world is exclusively by negotiation, persuasion, and influence. And what you want, the path of enlightenment here, is what we want that person to go down. And then a less attractive one, or maybe even three options. And they may be negotiated. There may be nuances. What you do not want, and a lot of negotiators don't get it, is this. Too many options. Too many options is overwhelming. It will send the person back to that free state in their limb limbic system, and no close will happen. Too many options, too many variables will not close deals. You have to have a limited number of options. 
And that's how to bridge this idea of biology, get people out of their limbic system, get them into their prefrontal cortex, where actually substantive negotiation can happen. And that's done. Your opener, the empathic statement, listen, repeat to confirm, and present your options. Finally, I want to go into this idea of systems, not goals. In a lot of the uh, negotiation press, we talk about goals, aim high, right? All these quips. And it's actually not, the research says goals are almost not, they can't be replicated if they are too high. So how do we get above average outcomes in a negotiated system? And that is negotiation because a lot of people think when you show up at the table, that's when the heavy lifting is done. That's when you can really win or lose. And this isn't true. Kellogg School at Northwestern University says, one of the researchers, 80% of your time should be spent in a plan before the negotiation, not during, not from the hip. You've got to plan. Why is this so? Because we want better than average negotiations. Every negotiation in a market that has disclosed information generally will regress to the mean. You may have a great outcome. Your sales guy, there may be one month where he kills it, absolutely outstanding, but then it takes a fall. Why? Because unusual results are not sustainable. What you can sustain within one or two standard deviations of the average on the upside, those are successful businesses. So how do they do that? How do we get one or two standard deviations above the mean in our negotiation performance, and that is with systems. And if you've read my first book, which is now 15 years old, I am a systems thinker, it's a systems approach. For lack of imagination, I put these buckets in strategy, tactics, and operations, and we'll go over each one of those right now. What is a strategy? It's a plan. 80% of your time should be done with a plan. What do you do? What do you mean, Martin? What do I put in my plan? Well, there are eight steps that we've used, and you can use these on everything. If it's an RFP, if it's a negotiated plan, if it's an M&A deal, if you follow generally these eight plans you can do, and we have in the persuasionlab.com, we have automated tools where you have the inputs and it actually coaches you on, hey, you need to work on this element a little bit better. And once you go through the eight steps on your plan, you're much better off. Your outcomes generally tend to be, again, above average. Next thing, tactics. Tactics are things that happen at the negotiation. Remember, strategies before the negotiation, the plan. Tactics are at the negotiation. Um, my third book called 161 Negotiations. I'm going to tell you the big reveal in this book. We polled 60 people who self-identified as uh, professional negotiators defined as I spend more than 50% of my day negotiating deals. And they told us what works. And number one negotiation is a question. The special question, it's an open-ended question where it invites more dialogue. Open-ended question, the number one tactic by professional negotiators. And I interviewed a lot of other people. That's how we got to 161. This data has been put in the database in the Persuasion Lab. It's a searchable database. We now have like 220 uh, tactics. It's searchable, you know, defines a tactic, what you can do, and uh, uh, how you can get out of it or how you can deploy it. Uh, we had a grad student this year, and I think she added something like 40 new tactics, primarily on pricing, how to price something. 
Operations, these are things external to the negotiation that affect its outcome. It's a very interesting thing. People think, oh, what you eat, time of day, does it impact the negotiation? Yeah, but remember the big hammer is the plan. Operations are something that pros focus on, but the situation can determine the trajectory of the negotiation. Let's talk about room layout as an example. So John Reed was a uh, 1950s psychologist, polygraph expert, and Chicago cop. And he designed what's called a Reed room. And show of hands, how many people have confessed to a felony? Anyone? Anyone? John Reed got a lot of people to confess to a felony because he played on the limbic system. Here we have the accused, two detectives, physical barrier, ingress and egress, it's blocked physically, no light switch, no temperature control. He got a lot of people to confess for felonies, even if they were innocent, because the person here wants to get the heck out of this room and they will do anything to do that. The John Reed room is old school. It doesn't work. You will get a confession even from innocent people. I was uh, teaching at university a couple of years ago and a student told me about a panel interview they had for a job. And this is what it was. Here's the interviewee. Here's the panelists, physical barrier door. This is the high stress limbic system, John Reed room for an employer. This employer will tell you anything you want to hear because they're uncomfortable. This is a stressful room. In uh, my podcast, we have about 100 episodes. We uh, uh, interviewed some people who are called forensic interrogators. They actually try to get people to get truthful confessions. And this is the contemporary room layout for a truthful confession. Uh, the accused can walk at any time. You know, he's close to environmental controls, light switch, whatever. He's in control. He feels relaxed. He may have a beverage, maybe green tea if you like him, maybe a spirulina smoothie if you don't. Um, and he will have an open dialogue, open body posture. There's no physical barrier between them. It's very easy. This person will be a lot more truthful than someone in that high stress amygdala system because truth a lot of times comes out of the prefrontal cortex. So we've got to transcend that biology, remember, to get this person to tell us, are they qualified for the job? Will they fit with our corporate culture? Those are important things. You don't want them in a stress position. Now, there are some situations where you do want that, but in, for most employment today, you probably don't want that. The way to master operations, because there's a lot of external things that can impact the trajectory of your negotiation, is simply to focus on your plan and run your plan. Don't focus on a single goal because sometimes those will change. Opportunities and new value maybe come, uh, come out of a negotiation that you didn't know you had. But when you focus on a plan and adapt it accordingly, uh, operationally, you know, all these other variables may not, won't uh, trip you up essentially. And those are the takeaways from our systems approach. A strategy, if you wanna master strategy, it's basically a plan. If you want to master tactics, ask questions. If you want to master operational systems, you got to focus on, again, that plan. And those are the three things that I hope today will help you um, develop this persuasive mindset, these filters where you say, oh, yeah, this is something that Martin told me that's, it's a persuasive play here. So I'm going to 
be more attentive to that. We talked about narratives, how storytelling can actually persuade. We talked about how we have to transcend that limbic system. And we talked about the negotiation system you build will give you above average outcomes, according to our data and the published research. Uh, going off the cuff probably will not. And that's the, uh, the lessons from the forgotten theater. Once you have this filter, this knowledge of a persuasive mindset, uh, you will never forget it. And those of you in the crowd who raise your hands, who know about negotiation, you probably have it. And if you don't, uh, if you want to learn it, it is a learned skill. All this type of content I have is a free newsletter. You can text me now uh, or you can just email me. We have an in-person um, by invitation only, you actually have to have an application called Negotiation Dojo, where we actually go through real scenarios where we coach and drill on different high stakes negotiations. Um, I have a podcast, about 101 episodes on any podcast, Apple, wherever, Buzzsprout, everywhere. Um, I have an online course. Everything I talked about today is on my online course. Uh, and of course, the persuasionlab.com is a website that has assessments, negotiation scripts, layouts. Um, search engine, or just give me a call. Uh, love to talk to you about your negotiation experience.